I'm Michael Barber, and this is the Accomplishment Podcast. David Putnam, it's an absolute pleasure to have the opportunity of talking to you. You and I have known each other for uh, a long while now. I remember actually the first time we met, it was at the famous South Bank party on the 1st of May, 1997. You knew, I think, that I was going to go into the Department for Education with David Blunkett at the beginning of the Blair era. And you came bowling across the room to me, or at least this is how I remember it, and said, I'm going to come and work for you. I was thrilled to bits and amazed to meet uh, a world-famous film producer who's going to come and work for me. And as it turned out, you meant every word of it. Do you remember that occasion? Very well indeed. Very, very well indeed. What I was trying to do, Mike, was find a good exit from the movie industry, which the movie industry would kind of accept and not feel I was just, you know, throwing a wobbly. And um, it was through conversations with, with, with David Blunkett and others that's what I decided that what I'll do is make that shift and then tell the film industry that I'll claim that I've been recruited. The truth was I was recruiting myself. Yes, well, we were thrilled to recruit you, as it were, and it was an absolute pleasure and profound learning experience for me to work with you. What are your memories of the highlights of that time? I think um, a couple of things. It was part of what I'd learned from being in the movie industry, that unless you have colleagues who've got precisely similar vision, prepared to align them, and prepared, if necessary, to make some sacrifices in terms of their own ambition, you're not going to succeed. I mean, those are all absolute prerequisites for a decent movie. Yes. I call what you're describing as a condition of success, I call it building a guiding coalition, where you have seven to 10 people who really share the vision, share the approach, uh, and share the commitment to achieving the goal. I mean, you did many things, but two memories I have particularly. One is of helping get the National Year of Reading off the ground and getting an amazing array of people around a table, all of whom then made commitments, people like Ken Follett and others, to what became a, a really spectacular promotion of reading across the country. And then secondly, a continuous input from you, first of all, into a green paper on the future of the teaching profession, and then into the unfolding of that into a set of policies. Uh, for example, I remember you telling me early on that you thought staff rooms were just not appropriate for such a great profession. Do, do, do you recall all of that? You, I think you did lots of school visits, didn't you? Oh, I did, uh, I was going to say hundreds, certainly uh, many dozens of school visits. And that was the, the abiding thing I was coming away with was that there's no other similar profession that would tolerate the, the personal conditions under which they were working. And they'd become adjusted to it. I also watched how young teachers were being kind of destabilised and 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 in a way almost aimed off by older teachers whose experience uh, was anything but encouraging. And again, a lesson I'd learned from the advertising industry and from the film industry, that you can't work that way, that in fact the older group have got to be there both nurturing and encouraging a younger group. You can't have a, a situation where, you know, the, the, the English teacher who's been there 35 years has got the same seat in the corner and tells everyone else they're wasting their careers. It, it can't work. The Teaching Awards was a was a big success in those early, and they're still going, of course, but the I remember the first one, and you, this is where your direct experience as a film producer came in. I remember you arranging for a film crew to film, some, I forget which the award was, but maybe Head Teacher of the Year, was gonna, or, or, or maybe Primary School Teacher of the Year was going to get the award, and you got Tony Blair to kind of sneak into the school. They'd assembled all the children in, this, in an assembly, and they had no idea, none, none of the children, 
maybe one of the staff knew that Tony Blair was going to company turned up and it was just spectacularly tense movie. Do you remember that? Very, very vivid, vividly. And of course, we learned a lot from it. Once we knew we could do that, we started doing that with other personalities. So we made that part and parcel of each year's awards. We would have three or four awards where, as you say, a personality would sneak up. And some of the reactions were amazing, quite amazing. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that made it was a we managed to bring the changes. The BBC were extremely helpful as well. We had good producers who were looking for other ways of presenting awards. And do you remember between, say, 1997 and five years later, sensing a change in the mood of the teaching profession as a result of all that? Oh, definitely. And I was involved in doing the Everyone Remembers a Good Teacher. Oh, uh, yes. And that resonated in a most extraordinary way. That was a far more effective campaign than just a recruitment campaign. It somehow reminded teachers of why they were in teaching. Uh, and it also reminded reasonable number of personalities to thank them. So I think that's been a recurring thing that teachers, unquestionably, Michael, in 97, teachers did not, not only didn't feel appreciated, they felt somewhat demoralized. And we, I think we turned that around to, a, not wholly, but to a very great extent. Your contribution was extraordinary, to be honest. The insights, the promotion. In that role that you took on in education, you were you were drawing on your career as a film producer. And I just want to take you back to that. You had a spectacular film career, films such as The Killing Fields and The Mission, and perhaps above all, Chariots of Fire were the, the defining films and memorable films of the era. Uh, you won, I think, 10 Oscars. I can see one of them behind you. You won 25 BAFTAs. You won a Palme d'Or. I mean, it was an extraordinary career. Looking back on that, you must have thought often, in fact, I know you teach film production, so you must have thought, well, what were the el key elements of succeeding in a very, very competitive, demanding world with some big egos all around you? What enabled you to succeed so repeatedly? It wasn't like just once. Well, I think obviously, to extent, I'm very ambitious. I'm quite driven, and I work hard. I've always enjoyed work. Work isn't a, 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 a chore to me. It's what I it's what I do. But I think if I go back, I thought a lot about this, Michael. But here's here's my where I come out. I was born during the war. I didn't meet my dad till I was five. My father came back, having been an officer in the army, and things were quite tense at home in the first few years. You know, they'd been apart a lot. My dad at one point was away for three years. And I became the little peacemaker in the family. It may sound ridiculous, but at seven, right. I was the one that was kind of, my job was calm everyone down and stop things. My sister was younger than me. And I think that when I eventually then emerged, I became a messenger. I left school very early. My education was a, a kind of car crash, really. But what I discovered was I was good at getting people to feel good about themselves and to calming situations down. I did it in the ad agency when I had really big egos, Charles Saatchi, uh, Ridley Scott, Alan Parker, people who you know <laughs> were pretty tough. But yeah. getting getting them to work together and getting them to look look on life as a collective was, uh, was, that was in a way my role. I then transferred that role precisely into film. And I, that's why I became a producer. I would never have made a very good director or, or anything else. But as a producer, your job is holding the show together. Getting, bringing the best out of everyone, getting everyone, everyone to feel that they are contributing to the to the whole. And it, ridiculous as it may sound, I actually, more and more as I get older, and I'm now very old, take it back to that process of being the peacekeeper in the family, age seven. That's interesting. There's some interesting research. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. What the research showed, which, which actually resonates with what you just said, is, is that elite athletes are fantastically good, work hard, all the rest of it. The super elite athletes who multi-medal win winners, 
there is almost always somewhere in their childhood and upbringing a period of trauma where the sport became their redemption, their way of dealing with the trauma in their background. I wonder if that's a parallel with what you're describing. I think there's an, an element to that. I mean, as I said, I was, a, I was born in the Blitz. Um, I, more, I think more to the point is uh, a sort of interesting determination to move on. I'll tell you a funny tiny anecdote, but it seemed, I think it's in, informative. Uh, when I got my fellowship at BAFTA, which was a pretty big deal for me in 2008, I think, it was great. I gave a speech and I was on televised and everything else. And the following morning, quite early, I had to call, I'd find something out, and I called Matthew Taylor, who was at number 10 at the time. Yeah. And I remember him saying, David, David, I just was watching you on television at 11 o'clock last night. What, what, you know, why, why aren't you drunk? Why you? And I said, well, that was last night, Matthew. I've, I know, I've got, we've got this stuff to do today. And I think there's a kind of, almost like there's a piece missing in me that isn't ever able to wholly celebrate success. Um, and they kind of move on. I remember yeah. very, very vividly that when we lost, we did, we were nominated but didn't win the Oscar for Killing Fields, feeling that that squared things up with Chariots because I was kind of uneasy about Chariots. I wasn't sure I was ready to win an Oscar for Chariots. But by the but uh, two years later, losing it for Killing Fields, which I think was a, no, a more awesome movie, a better movie, actually, that was fine. Now I felt comfortable. So I've been, I was nominated four times and won once. That feels right to me. If right. I'd won three times, I would have thought, Jesus Christ, I was really ridiculously lucky. I don't feel ridiculously lucky. I think I got about the right of, about the right return for my investment, if that makes sense. Yes. You uh, highlighted the role in a great accomplishment in film of the producer as an assembling the people around the mission, building that, what I call the guiding coalition, building a lot of big egos into something that becomes greater than the than the individual parts and their contributions. What else is there in the role of producer? I, I, I mean, the, the, there must be something, uh, you, you obviously work hard, there must be something about attention to detail, just getting, making sure it, that everybody's in the right place at the right time when you start shooting, because that's expensive, isn't it? It's very expensive. I think I was always a very good pre-producer, if that makes sense. Uh, the uh, the pre-production process is when you can actually plan things and they're not you haven't got a cash register running right you know going yeah. every, every moment so getting things right anticipating what could go wrong and being ready for that I've always been very good actually I shouldn't compliment myself but very good yeah, at having a, having a plan B therefore I don't get thrown for a complete loop when things go wrong because I almost anticipate it. And I think uh, that helps as well as a film producer because the crew immediately, when things go wrong, crew look to you. Well, and, and the director indeed looks to you, well, now what? And when you can actually stand and say, well, I'll tell you what, now what? It's pissing with rain. We didn't anticipate this, but what we'll do is this. And you actually right. have already worked out what you're going to do if it rains or what you're going right. to do. If the, uh, and I think it's almost built into my DNA, actually, the, pl the plan Bism. And again, I don't want to take it on board as a quality. I think there's something slightly negative, but slightly pessimistic almost about it, but it's there. How do you convey the professionalism that is imbued in you into every person playing their part? I think when I decided to teach online, it's not a bad example, uh, there are a number of ways you could do it. You could do it kind of cheap and cheerful. What I decided to do was see how well you could do it. So, for example, our first target was, can we teach online in Brisbane? We chose Brisbane because it was a long way away, and I happened to know a guy that ran the film school there. But uh, right. So can we do it in Brisbane? If we can do it in Brisbane, we can do it almost anywhere else, number one. Secondly, 
the office that we work in. What are the students? What are the students looking at? Are they going to see something which is really, really professional and great? And is the quality of communication going to quality of technology going to be great? Or are we going to kind of make do and mend? So I I think it was a good example of what I've always tried to do is how good could this be? What does good really look like? And can we afford good? I mean, that's the other thing, of course, with movies is you're always working with budgetary parameters. But how good could it we make it? given the resources we've got. My greatest achievement as a film producer may sound odd one. Broadly speaking, films are above the line and below the line content. Above the line is the actors, the director, the writer, et cetera, et cetera. Below the line is every all the people that actually do the work. The normal split when I was operating was around 70-30. 30% above the line, 70% below the line. The killing fields, the above the line was 3%. So 97% of the cost of that movie you see on the screen. Now, that requires a lot of discipline, some luck, definitely, uh, but an attitude of mind towards what you're trying to do. We set out to make sure that the budget we had, everything was on the screen that could possibly be there. That isn't today the average, believe it or not, the average on movies, roughly 50-50. 50% goes in financing costs, stars, etc., and only half is spent on the actual movie, the actual stuff you see on the screen. I remember you telling me a story a long time ago about timekeeping and about a driver you had taking you to one of the sets of one of your great films. And one day he was late and you realised, you, you can tell the story, you realised how much that would cost. And then the story unfolded with an alarm clock. Do you want to tell that story? I think people would like it. Yeah, I, uh, we, we were we were a bit late. Now, driver is a really important person on a movie because they're picking up particularly the stars in the morning, get them in very early into makeup, and everything hinges on the way that kind of clicks into place. And yeah, we had a driver that was late, and I called all the drivers in. And they, after this, I always said it certainly and said, "Look, guys, you do realise you are absolutely crucial to getting the, the day off properly." And here's a present for you. And I gave them all alarm clocks, and they all said, "Well." Oh my God! We've all got alarm clocks. You know, we're professionals. I said, "Well, now you've got two alarm clocks. Therefore, you have absolutely no excuse to say to me the alarm clock didn't go off. No excuse. Set both alarm clocks. And interesting enough, when I'm away in location or else, I always do. I never rely on one alarm clock. Uh, so it's that kind of neurosis has seeped into my own <laughs> my own life. And then, if a driver after that warning is late, what happens then? He's gone. And they know they're gone. They've gone. Of course, the others have to know there is no second chance. But you've gone out of your way to give them every chance by making sure they've got two alarm clocks. It's a, it's a, it's a very um, it's a story with a with a clear moral and a clear standard built into it. Well, there's another little tiny thing worth mentioning. That the worst insult, and you know, people use language rather freely today, but the worst insult you could use in a film crew, a tour film crew, is you're behaving unprofessionally. If you said that to someone, that's worse than 27 swear words. You're right. behaving unprofessionally. And people knew that was kind of the beginning of the end. It would be quite nice to recapture a world where the notion of being a professional was so important. And it was in all the craft skills. And I think British labourers were brilliant at being professional. That attitude to professionalism, I'm afraid I don't detect as much as I, certainly as much as I used to. Do you think, because you, you, from 1997 onwards, you basically took a new career direction. You came in to help on education. You took a role in the House of Lords, which we'll come on to in a minute. You became president of UNICEF UK. In this series of podcasts, I've been trying to tease out the common pattern of accomplishment, and you've described it beautifully. But what I'd be interested in is the extent to which that pattern that you had learned and obviously mastered to a very high standard 
in the film industry. How did that help you become a great leader of educators, a great role model in UNICEF and um, a very effective member of the House of Lords? I think you know, the, 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 the word is leadership. You've used it a couple of times there. Uh, try to, 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 first of all, to see yourself as a leader and have the courage to be a leader. So uh, what is a leader? You know, I happen to like Ed Miliband very much indeed. But the day that he declared to become the leader of the Labour Party, I knew it was going to be a disaster because Ed is not a natural leader. He's actually a really good collaborator and colleague, but he's not a leader. What is a leader? Well, what I tried to always be is the person who, when things were going wrong, people looked to. And when you said, you know what we're going to do, I thought about it, we're going to do this. They didn't start getting into an argument. They had enough confidence in you that you weighed up the pros and cons and that your leadership qualities were sufficient for them to say, okay, that's what we do. Maybe isn't necessarily what I would have done, or even that, and I would have quite liked to have a conversation about the other options. But if that's what, so that's leadership. It's it's belief. It's credibility. Track record obviously helps a lot. I mean, it was much easier for me on the mission to convince people that what I wanted to do was going to work than it would have been on the first one or two movies. In fact, it was very difficult the first one or two movies. In, in yeah. truth, so I think there's a quality of leadership which requires confidence, self belief. And the ability to come. Here's the key, Mike. You've got to you've got to communicate your own self belief, and do it with real conviction. Because if you're questioning your decisions, other people pick it up immediately. Um, it's like it's it's like it's like courage. I don't think you can ever enter a serious negotiation unless you're prepared to lose, because that transmits the person you're negotiating with knows absolutely that you have a red line. Uh, and I remember giving a speech to the House of Lords talking about red lines, red lines and how hopeless I thought the, the, the Johnson government was in terms of their trade deals, uh, where, where in a sense they, were, they didn't have any, there weren't any red lines. It was like, well, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And you can't deal like that. And we were particularly talking about the US trade deal, making a US trade deal. And as you can understand, Americans are brilliant negotiators. I spent my life negotiating with Americans. And unless you establish clear red lines with Americans, you are toast. When I'm working with governments uh, and there's a negotiation, um, I always talk about um, a phrase from the Harvard Negotiating Research Project where they talk about a BATNA, your best alternative to a negotiated agreement. And you have to have a BATNA in order to get the negotiation because you have to know what would happen if you lose or what yeah. you would do. You um, spent more than 20 years as a, a very active member of the House of Lords. And that's... Um, not an obvious place to assemble guiding coalitions and focus on a project and see it through. How did you go about that? Because you did some very, very important work, both on the environment and then technology and its implications for democracy. Th these are two hugely important themes that might not make the front page of the newspapers every day, but they're underlying massively important to the future of humanity. How did you go about in the very uh, visible and conflictual context of the House of Lords go about pursuing those themes over a period of time? Well, one partly was a result of, a, of some disappointment that you and I must have both suffered. Um, it, between 92 and 97, and even earlier, I worked hard with the, with the Labour Party, particularly with Chris Smith and, uh, and others, creating a, a, a framework for creative industries. And all of our work was evidence-based. We did a huge amount of my gathering uh, evidence as to the, the position we wanted to put forward, what could work, what could, where was the growth. And I think it's fair to say that evidence-based uh, policymaking was a mantra we all signed up to. The disappointment for me after 97, that was by, by 99, 
we'd already moved to what works. And evidence, evidence was useful, but if it was in a political context not, not helpful, you'd shift, on, you'd shift to, a, frankly, a PR campaign. So I was disappointed by how much time we spent re-announcing stuff that we'd already announced. And I remember having one conversation with David Blunkett. We're talking about how this is going to appear. And I said, David, why don't we just for one year try and be really good instead of worrying about looking good? In a year's time, we could say, look, we've done that and that and that and that. We've just been good. And he'd actually he said to me, look, you're being naive. Uh, people don't think that way. They don't, they won't, they won't appreciate, think, you know, they think well of us that way. So point I want to make is this. Once I realised the way politics worked, and I realised I was not a natural politician, really, at all. What I was was a coalition builder. And I started yeah. spending serious time seeking out the people in the Conservative Party, and particularly people who lived Dems, who I felt I could work with, and building consensus and building. And I looked for places where it was easiest. Where it's easiest was what I lighted on, which is what's in the public interest. Not so much what's in the political interest. What issue here is in the public interest? And if you remember, 2003... I and two, I did that communications bill. I took the communication bill through. Yes, yes. I managed exactly. to establish the public interest test. Now we established that. What's amazing about that? And there's no, no, I'm not trying to boast here. It was a, we did it despite both front benches. The Tories, for their reasons, didn't want it, and Tony Blair, because of relationship to Murdoch, one there also didn't want it. And we've got it through. And I learned then that if you could find things that people would kind of gather around. You could almost defy the politics of, of the situation. And that's what I spent my time doing. So that ability that you had learned in the film industry to assemble people around a task worked in the political context. What's in the public interest reminds me of the interview I did with Justin Trudeau for my book, Accomplishment, where he, he said, when I ran to be leader of the Liberal Party, I didn't ask myself, can I win? I asked myself, if I won, how would we want to change Canada? And could I do that? And you're saying, ask yourself, what's in the short, medium and long term interest of the public, and then assemble people and an agenda to deliver those underlying interests. Is that, and and you, presumably you thought similarly about the whole environmental issue, which you were quite well ahead of the game on that, weren't you? Uh, yes. Well, that was lucky there because I'd been president of the Council of Protection of Rural England very, very, when I was very young. So I'd actually got a grasp of environmental issues by the time I was 35. But what, here's an interesting one. Ron Oxborough and I, having had the success of the public interest test and the communications bill, the next bill down became the new energy bill. And with right. quite a lot of support from people like Malcolm Wicks, we went and got a very high level meeting, I won't tell you who, but really high level meeting, to try and establish a public interest test for mergers and takeovers in the energy sector. And we were rebuffed. Now, we were rebuffed for appalling reasons. I mean, there, there was no rational argument against us other than we don't want to offend this and we've got to make, we're making a deal with Russian oil. And so I still think that that was a, quint, a marvelous moment, a quintessential moment for me, where Ron Roxborough, who was a powerful figure, and I were profoundly right that this was a sector, mergers and takeovers, where the public interest was paramount. We could not get that past politicians. I'm not just blaming. It would happen to be our own party at the time, uh, the Labour Party. But I, don't, I think we'd have exactly the same problem, maybe more so, actually, with the Tories. And what you see is there are rigidities within party politics which act in defiance of the public interest. And that 
I suppose, is something I've I've left politics still sore from and still trying to uh, use you know, my own energies and my own energies as a teacher to advocate for. The public interest is everything. What is a citizen? What are the rights of the citizens? What are the inalienable rights? So people toss around the word democracy as though it's a, you know, it's like a word. Actually, democracy is something very, very, very fundamental. And only when you see it tested, as we are at the moment in Ukraine, only then people kind of wake up and say, oh, yeah, well, of course, democracy is very important. Oh, yeah, the ability to cut off Gazprom is quite significant. Well, that's now. Believe me, I've had those conversations in the last 10, 15, 20 years where actually it was all about the flow of money. And the flow of money has distorted and disrupted politics throughout the whole of my adult life. Your last major contribution in the Lords, if I haven't, if I remember this correctly, was um, report on the threat of various de- developments in the technology and communications field to democracy. Now, the Ukraine issue has put democracy very much in the public eye, as you say. But these underlying trends about communication—you've left the Lords now. Are you still worried about that? And if so, what needs to be done by your successors in the Lords or or others who pick up the baton? Politics can't operate on the basis of people lying. Uh, Disinformation isn't just, these are not fibs. Disinformation is a means of disabling somebody from making the correct decision, given the right amount of facts about their own their own or their, their country's future. So what we tried to point out in the Digital Democracy Report was that anything that the digital world did to make disinformation, misinformation easier was desperately damaging to our, our collective con- uh, concept of democracy. You couldn't square, you can't square that circle. You can't say disinformation is okay and, and we'll make democracy work around it. It can't. It's one or the other. Democracy either works on a truth-based information-rich environment, or it can't work. And what do you say to the people in the communications and tech businesses who say, uh, but hang on a minute, David, if you go down the route you've just described, you're going to have government interference, and that is also going to undermine democracy? They've already gone one step too far. What they've got to understand is that the tools that they've created for themselves bring with them massive responsibility, massive I try and say this in a tiny way to my own students when in filmmaking. Don't set yourself up as a filmmaker unless you're prepared to accept you're going to be tinkering inside people's brains because that's what you're doing. You are actually invading people's brains and giving them ideas, images, thoughts. You better know what you're doing and you better know very, very well that the net result will be a better informed person leaving that cinema. Magnify that by a a thousand times and that's the responsibility of the people who run the big tech companies they've got to accept the fact they've got awesome responsibility and they better address it whatever you're doing whether you're making a film running a tech company or indeed teaching in a in a school you need to think about the ethical underpinning of the actions you're taking day after day after day is that right is is, is that what you believe Absolutely. It's an, I think it's the inescapable quality of being a decent human being is dealing in consequences. And I remember giving a speech and got myself in some trouble in, in L.A. once saying that we we're in danger of becoming a consequentless society, i.e. a society that did not think through the consequences of our actions. Well, once you, once you divorce actions with consequences, you're in every kind of trouble. One of the things that ha- happened in your film career is you became, you were briefly in charge of Columbia studios and i don't think you enjoyed it um 
and I don't think you'd count it as among your successes. Are there lessons that all of us can learn from the things we get wrong from the failures in our career? Yes, uh, I think hubris. I mean, the truth was it came at a moment where I had won everything in a sense. And Patsy quite rightly said to me, look, what are you going to do now? What are you going to kind of run around the track again and try and Patsy's win? Patsy's your wife. Patsy's my wife. Say uh, run a cup, run a cup, uh, try and win another Oscar or another Palme d'Or. Um, and it was just at that very vulnerable moment that I was offered this extraordinary thing of kind of literally being chairman of the board of a, of a major film studio. I mean, it was it doesn't happen. It never, ever happened to anyone other than Americans in the past. And I was silly enough to put myself up for it. And the truth is, I'm a detailed person. You know, I, I, and I'm a hands-on person. I make things. You can't make things in, in, that, in, that, in that suite. You're kind of, you're just juggling all the time. It's almost like being a dentist. A dentist will see you now and you look at someone and say, oh, nothing to do about your teeth. I'm sorry. Um, you're also the the con- conveyor of bad news most of the time because only about one in 10, 20 occasions you're going to meet with someone and say, yes, that's the film we'll make. So you spend your entire life in a kind of negative spiral. It, it played to every single one of my flaws and very, very few of my of my assets. There was a brief moment where I thought I might have built a team. When I, I think that probably lasted about three months. But other than that, it was like trying to push water uphill. It was a very, very bad decision. And I escaped from it with my life intact. <laughs> so the lesson was paradoxically, it taught you how important your qualities were and how important to be in a work environment where you could make use of those qualities. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely, it was. It actually was a very, very important learning process for me. When I look back, I yeah. wouldn't be the person I am now, or be able to do the things I do now, had I not had that real job, a uh, very, very important job in my career. But going back to the beginning, David, you, you started by uh, mentioning your parents and your uh, the the war, and you were brought up in Southgate in in, uh, in North London. Um, did you? or they, would they ever have imagined that you'd be an Oscar-winning film producer and a member of the House of Lords? I mean, do you look back on that and take some pride in that, some, or, or just amazement at, at what happened in your life, the journey you took? I think, yes, I, I certainly felt amazement. My mum wanted me to be a doctor and was always disappointed <laughs> that, I, that I failed. Uh, my dad was in Fleet Street, and I always, and for many, many, many years, I imagined I was going to follow him into Fleet Street. And I think but part of my mind still works journalistically. You know, at my home, we never looked at the newspapers. It was, it was an analysis of what stories have been handled well and what stories have been buried. And how, my dad was great at analysing yeah. the, the day's news. And I think that's an element I, I, I picked up. No, not in the million years. You know, I used to sit in the front row of the cinema at local Odeon, having got in by using the bar at the back, uh, as, a, as a, a bit of bravado. And the idea that I could be a movie producer, first of all, they all had middle initials. So, you know, they all, normally it was Z. Uh, yeah. And they well, was, and David Putnam didn't kind of fit. I couldn't see it on the screen. So, no, it never, never crossed my mind. It's funny because that, that era that your dad was a journalist is totally different era media-wise from now, isn't it? I, I was... Um, this is totally trivial, but I happened to be reading because uh, when my dad died, I inherited some of his books, and one of them was a biography of the great cricketer Dennis Compton, who first came from England, I think, it was in 1938, but around that time anyway. And it describes how he found out he was an England team. So there's a test match starting on Thursday, and on Wednesday, his dad, Dennis Compton's dad, goes to the newsstand to buy the Evening Standard and comes home and says, "Dennis, you're in the team tomorrow." <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, it's it's kind of unimaginable that one of the superstars of sport would find out from his dad by an evening standard. And it, it, it just, it's still, how much has changed over seven well, or 80 years? It's just incredible. to make, just so you know, it hasn't, it's, it's even over the last 35 years, I found out I was a member of the House of Lords because I went to get a coffee at our local in Skiverine uh, and picked up a copy <laughs> of the newspaper, opened it, and I was one of nine people. It says nine, nine uh, new Labour peers. And there I was... Uh, and only when I got home did I get a phone call from the uh, the chief whip saying, uh, did you read the news? I said, yeah. He said, I've got one question to ask you, David. And I said, what is it? He said, are you a member of the Labour Party? <laughs> 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 and I said, yes, I am, Dennis. He said, thank God, not all of them are. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, well, maybe the media hasn't changed quite as much as I thought then. Um, David, this has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. Um when I mention you to other people, I always say I never have a conversation with David without getting at least one and often many insights into the state of the world we're in. Uh, today has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, is there anything you want to add to finish off? Uh, or can I just thank you and round it off? Uh, all I would say is, Michael, I was 81 last week, uh, is that throughout life, it is important to remember the way in which what do you want to leave behind? My dad was a remarkable person. And I've had that example all of my life. And you know, it is important to say, well, how how might I be remembered? I don't think it's an irrelevant question. I don't think it's a hubristic question. But I think it is a way of tempering some of the things you do. And it certainly stood me in good stead. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you for listening to the Accomplishment Podcast and my thanks to guest David Putnam. I'd love to hear your stories of change. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at MichaelBarber9. There's also a book that accompanies this podcast, Accomplishment, How to Achieve Ambitious and Challenging Things. And don't forget to review the Accomplishment Podcast and subscribe so you don't miss great game changers telling their stories on how to get things done. This podcast is produced by Siobhan O'Connell, thanks to her and to the rest of the team.